Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Would you join me in prayer once more? Lord Jesus, out of our bondage, sorrow, and night we come. Be pleased to meet with us in the moments ahead and show us your freedom, gladness, and light. It's in your name we trust and we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, if you join me in Psalm 46, our text this morning will be Psalm 46. Fear is an experience shared by all of us, every man, woman, and child throughout history and throughout the world today. It is common. We share common ground in that we all experience fear, regardless of our race, gender, um, religion, ethnicity, or social class. We will face fears. Why do we fear, though? We fear for many reasons. Some of them are rational and some are quite irrational. But at a fundamental level, we fear because we live in a sin-cursed world. And there are many legitimate reasons to fear because this sin-cursed world is plagued by dangers, threats, and many unknowns. These are understandable reasons to experience fear. Another fundamental reason that we experience fear is because we are not God. And by that, I mean we lack his sovereign omnipotence to dictate the outcomes and the end game and to guarantee our own security. At the end of the day, we have to acknowledge we are finite creatures. To look to any finite creature for ultimate safety and security is utter futility and madness. My goal this morning is that each of you would be still that you would quiet your hearts before God and that you would rest in the freedom that he offers you in Jesus Christ. I sincerely hope that each of you will experience increasing freedom from fear and grow in a deep-seated faith and trust in God. Let's read Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah, come. Manual Church, Come, behold the works of the Lord, 
how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. The main idea of this psalm is that God is a refuge for his people and will be exalted among the nations for his own glory. God is a refuge for his people and he will be exalted among the nations for his own glory. And I want to unpack this under three main headings this morning. First, refuge in God's providence, verses 1 through 3. Second, refuge in God's presence, verses 4 through 7. And then third and finally will be refuge in God's plan, verses 8 through 11. First, let's consider this. Emmanuel Church, find your refuge in God's providence. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 introduces the main idea of the whole psalm. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The rest of the psalm is actually spent unpacking and exploring this idea of God being a refuge for his people. Kids here, do you know what a refuge is? If you had to answer that right now, I won't ask you to answer that out loud. But if you were asked to answer, what is a refuge? What would you say? A refuge is a person or a place that you run to when you're afraid or in danger or under threat. It's a place of safety and security or a person of safety and security. A couple of months ago, Zach DePrima and I had the chance to travel to Iraq to visit our missions partners there. We spent most of our time in Erbil, which is a city in the northern part of Iraq, in Iraqi Kurdistan, a large Kurdish population of that region of the country. And while we were in Erbil, we were actually kind of taken on the tour of the, the downtown city area, and there's uh, an area called the Citadel. It's a, it's a big fortress, old stone wall, ancient stone-walled fortress sitting up on the hill in the middle of the city. Um, and there's really rich history there. In 331 B.C., Darius... Uh, king of Persia, actually marched near to Erbil in the plains surrounding Erbil uh, to squash a young upstart invader from Macedonia and Greece. Picture this scene as it unfolds. Darius and his army of 120,000 draw up their battle line. Under his command are infantry, cavalry, and even war elephants. Across the way, this this young Macedonian upstart draws up his battle line and faces off against Darius. He has 47,000 at his command, 120,000 on one side versus 47,000 on the other side. You can just picture this scene as it's about to unfold. Darius has home field advantage, and he vastly outnumbers his opponent. It's 120,000 versus 47,000. The battle begins. It takes on a very short notice, a very unexpected turn, though, that Darius did not anticipate. Despite having a drastic advantage in numbers and the home field advantage, 
Darius suddenly finds himself outflanked by the young Macedonian invader from Greece. And Darius sends so many troops over to his flanked to try to counteract this attack that he leaves a gap in the middle of his line. And it's at that point that Alexander the Great delivers a death blow to Darius's army at that weak point in the middle. Darius recognizes his looming defeat and quickly retreats and takes refuge in the citadel there in Erbil. He reconvenes there with his leaders and begins to make plans of how to rectify the situation. His world's just turned upside down. Everything he thought would happen was turned back against him. Well, he expected still to achieve victory. He had lost the battle, but he fully anticipated to win the war. See, he still had plenty of armies dispersed all over the kingdom of Persia. His plan was to sit in the safety and security of his refuge in the citadel there in Erbil, send out messengers and gather all of his armies back to him so that he could then defeat Alexander the Great. He felt absolutely safe, absolutely secure. He had thick stone walls. He had food. He had water. He could ride this out until his help came and he could squash Alexander the Great. What Darius failed to recognize was the threat sitting right inside the walls of his refuge with him. His own military leaders actually turned on him, betrayed him, killed him, and delivered him to Alexander as an offering of peace to make peace with Alexander the Great. Darius, king of Persia, was dead. Against the odds and against all of his expectations, he had lost, and he was even betrayed, murdered, and was dead. His refuge was not as good as he thought. My friends, is the refuge or the refuges that you are running to in life, that you're setting up as your places of security, are they as good as you think? If your refuge is not God himself, then there will come a day when you find yourself exposed and crushed under the evil onslaught of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you will have no help and no hope. You will be left utterly exposed in that moment. Well, the second part of verse 1 here says that God is a very present help in trouble. Um, This verse could actually also be translated that God is a well-proved help in trouble. Christians are not exempt from trouble, but our experience in trouble is drastically different, should be drastically different, since we have God as our refuge and strength. He has proven himself faithful to his people throughout the Bible and throughout modern history. His help always comes at the appointed time. It does not come a second too late or a second too soon. Maybe it is not the time we wanted or we would have wished for God to intervene and rectify our circumstances. But he intervened at the moment where he would get the greatest glory and we would be most sanctified, most conformed into his image. His timing is impeccable. His ways are not our ways. 
He is higher than we are. I love what the commentator Alexander McLaren uh, says about this verse. Quote, There's little good in a fortress, however impregnable, if it is so difficult to reach that a fugitive might be slain a hundred times before he was safe in it. But this high tower, no foe can scale. Which no foe can scale can be climbed at a thought, and a wish lifts us within its mighty walls. End quote. What an amazing promise, what an amazing reality of the type of refuge that God is, that, that he can be climbed at a thought, and a wish lifts us within its mighty walls. This is true only because God has chosen to graciously reveal himself to us and offer us that refuge. Our God is a very present help for us in trouble. He is not a God, a God who is far off and untouchable, who has wound up the universe as a clock, stepped back and is letting it run its course. He is a God who is imminently with us and offers his own omnipotent creative power to us to secure our safety and refuge in him. Be encouraged that as you work through the troubles that you may be facing in this very moment, some of you, or that you will at some point face down the road, the Lord of the universe offers himself to be your refuge. Verses 2 and 3 say, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. See, this is where God's work of providence enters into the picture. In God's providence, he allows great turmoil to enter into our lives. In his wise, wise plan, sometimes we find ourselves feeling like the world has been turned upside down. It is coming crashing down around us, and the waters of life are absolutely submerging us. That is the imagery that the psalmist so poetically paints for us here in verses 2 to 3. He takes mountains, the most stable, immovable thing we can think of in all of creation, and he depicts them as being picked up and thrown into the heart of this raging, tempestuous sea. And that's what our lives feel like sometimes. We feel as if they are roaring and foaming, and that we are lost and being tossed around in these chaotic waters, it is in those moments, brothers and sisters, that even still, God is our refuge. He's saying in, in the most chaotic acts of God's divine providence in our life, even in those moments, I am here, I am with you. I am your refuge and strength. It's amazing to think about that God himself offers us that protection, that safety, that he enters in with us. We need not fear if we are united to this God who spoke all of creation into existence out of nothing. Nothing. We need not fear if we are united to the Son of God, the, the incarnate revelation of God himself, Jesus Christ, who could walk on water in the middle of a storm 
that frightened fishermen and with a simple spoken word calmed the tempestuous waves that were crashing around them. The psalmist is not saying, hear this, he, he is not saying that Christians are impassable people who are emotionless and incapable of fearing, feeling fear. Rather, he is saying that Christians do not need to be overwhelmed or consumed by fear. And we should not be overwhelmed or consumed by fear because we have the Lord himself who offers himself to be our refuge and strength. What a promise as we traverse the waves of life in a fallen world, dealing with all of the chaos and all of the pain and suffering that our own sins bring into our lives, and that all of the, the chaos, pain, and suffering that the sins of other people in the world around us brings into our lives, we have the Lord himself as our refuge. Let's move on to verses 4 through 7 and consider our second main point. Emmanuel Church, find your refuge in God's presence. Verses 4 through 7. Verse 4 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. If you're in refuge, if you're under refuge or in siege in an ancient city, then you will last only as long as your source of water. Israel is actually unique among many of the ancient nations, uh, the ancient powers, and that it was not built along a major river. The only thing they had was the brook of Siloam running by it, and they actually diverted that and used that to irrigate their gardens. But it wasn't on the Tigris or the Euphrates or any other major rivers in that region. Their enemies were actually able to, to block and divert that river. And so in Israel's experience, in their history, they actually experienced times of intense starvation from food and water as their enemies blocked their water supply and starved them out. What then is the river which, whose streams make glad the city of God that the psalmist is talking about in this passage. Well, the river that makes glad the city of God is the overflow of God's grace for his people. His grace is depicted as a river to his people in times of trouble. It nourishes and sustains them. His river of grace is so broad and so deep that it can send out so many little tributaries to the lives of every single one of his children to meet and nourish their needs. And that it can sustain a flow of nourishing water to every, not only every individual person, but every one of their needs, every one of the troubles that they face in this life. Though the nations may rage around us, we are perfectly secure in the grace of God. He has but to utter his voice and our circumstances will change. God's presence with his people is one of the primary ways that we see his grace overflow to us. See, one of the unique elements of the message of Christianity and the Bible is that God, the God of Christianity, is one who though he is the transcendent Lord of glory and is enthroned and reigns over all things. He has, he has made himself eminently present with his people. He has revealed himself to his creation. So I want for us to notice three ways that God is present with his people. 
First, God is present with his people when they gather for worship. In verse 4, the psalmist draws our attention to the sanctuary or the holy habitation of the Most High. See, the sanctuary or the tabernacle or the temple was the focal point of Israel's worship. It was in the tabernacle and the temple that God, on, on numerous occasions, revealed his glory to his people. While the Israelites were traveling across the wilderness, God descended on the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. At the dedication, when Solomon had finished building the temple, the glory of the Lord filled the temple so much so that the priests couldn't even stand to minister. It was in the temple week by week, even when God was not giving these dramatic manifestations of his glory to his people as in the temple week by week that the people gathered and the law of God was taught and sung and they learned of him and knew him through it. And then fast forwarding now to the New Testament, in Ephesians we are told that the temple of God is not a building but rather is the people of God. It is the gathering of the community of saints. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22 says, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When, when the church gathers, when, when the people of God gathers, it's like stones, spiritual stones being built together to construct a temple of worship for God. It's God the Holy Spirit now personally indwells every follower of his Son, Christ, and reveals himself in a unique way to us when we gather together to worship him. Matthew 18, 20 says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The gathered church and the special presence of Christ in the gathered church is a refuge to us in times of trouble, brothers and sisters. It's a place of security and a place of safety. Hard trials and temptations, when we are walking through them, tend to try to isolate us from God's people and God's word in which he manifests himself and his presence to us now. Tends to try to sever us off, to cut us off from fellowship with God through his word and with God through his people. And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you for the good of your soul, make it your commitment to seek every opportunity to gather together with God's people, especially especially when we are going through times of trial and trouble and temptation. So God is present with his people when they gather to worship. Second way that God is present, he is present in his covenant promises to his people. Verses 7 and 11 say that, talk about the God of Jacob is our fortress. The God of Jacob, that language is covenantal language. See, when the Israelites were experiencing troubles, they could actually look back or talk to their grandparents and see the way that God had acted on their behalf throughout the generations before them. 
They could see the way that God had acted in decisive and supernatural ways to protect his people. See, he had revealed himself to them as a promise-making and a promise-keeping God, a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. The third way that God presents that God is present is in his Son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son of God from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the the incarnation of Christ is the most magnificent manifestation of the way that God has revealed his presence to us as his creatures. It is our greatest refuge in times of trouble. Christ himself is our greatest refuge in times of trouble. My friends, if you have Christ, you have all that you need. You need nothing more. But my friends, if you don't have Christ, then you are starved of the greatest source of help and comfort and compassion and wisdom and power to deal with your troubles, to deal with the effects of sin from your own heart and from the world around you. If you are not a follower of Christ and you're in this position, exposed, without a refuge, without a help, I want to plead with you to listen to God's call that comes in the verses now in front of us. Let's move on to verses 8 through 11 and consider our third main point. Emmanuel Church, find your refuge in God's plan. Find your refuge in God's plan. God's plan is to glorify himself by being exalted among the nations through saving his chosen people and judging all those who oppose him. Let me say that one more time. It's a big statement. God's plan is to glorify himself by being exalted among the nations through saving his chosen people and judging all those who oppose him. And he has been acting this plan out on the stage of history. And he will bring it to a dramatic climax on that last day when his son returns and is worshipped by people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Christians here today, you are the first fruits of this. You are the evidence that God is working out his plans. See, most of us here are not Jews. We're not Israelites who God revealed himself to in a peculiar way in history. We're not the ones that the covenants were given immediately directly to as a people, as a nation. And yet God has grafted in so many of you and saved so many of you. And he has worked his plan of salvation. Charles Spurgeon says of this text, Quote, the prospects of missions are bright, bright as the promises of God, end quote. But 
we would be ignoring the text as it lies in front of us if we focused only on the way God saved Israel from her enemies, on the way he saves us now today from our sins. God is also exalted and glorified in the way that he exercises his divine justice against all those who commit cosmic treason against him and against his redeemed people. Any creature, you see, who disbelieves in and disobeys his or her creator has undeniably committed cosmic treason. See, that treason rightly results in alienation, severing of relationship between us and God, and rightly results in the consequence of judgment. For the wages of sin is death, Romans teaches us. We don't know the historical setting of this psalm with 100% accuracy, but most commentators agree that it's most likely pinned in response to the way God miraculously delivered Israel from Sennacherib's army in 2 Kings 19. You see, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, had, had surrounded Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Uh, the people are locked in Jerusalem, water supplies running out, foods running out. The people are beginning to despair. And then King Hezekiah cries out to the Lord and prays for the Lord to grant deliverance to Israel. And he prays specifically, if you read that passage in 2 Kings 19, he appeals to the Lord to do this for the sake of his own name, for his own glory. And overnight, God sent an angel who struck down 185,000 Assyrians. You see, the Israelites went to bed besieged beyond human hope, humanly speaking. And they woke up to find their enemy decimated. And they were free to go and gather food and drink from the fields and the streams. The Lord had, had worked, a miraculous decision, uh, worked a miraculous salvation for them. The Lord had brought desolations to the Assyrian army and he had made the war cease. He had crushed the bow and shattered the spear for the sake of his own glory and the good of his people. And with that, the psalmist calls us, calls all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike, to be still and know that I am God. The call to be still is essentially a call to cease and desist, to lay down your arms and to stop warring against your creator. It is a battle you cannot win. See, God will glorify his name in all the earth. Nothing can stop him from achieving his great end to glorify his own name. The redeeming and calling so many to himself and through exercising his divine justice against all those who would commit cosmic treason by rejecting their creator. Philippians 2, 10 through 11 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On the last day, Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that King Jesus is Lord. 
either out of loving worship or begrudging compulsion, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. My friends who are not followers of Christ here today, we're glad you're here. We're so glad any time for you to come and to worship with us. Uh, we want you to see Jesus. We want you to savor Jesus and to know him and the great grace that he offers to you. But if you are here today and you are not a follower of Christ, your self-constructed refuges will not protect you on the last day when God judges the whole earth separating those who love his son from those who have rejected him and committed treason against him. Your self-constructed refuge is a house of cards that with the slightest breeze will blow down and crumble on that day. But even now, in this moment, God himself is offering himself to you through his son Jesus as your refuge. He says, all who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. He will by no means cast you out. Every other person you may look to as a refuge, every other aspect of life that you may run to, whether a place or a habit, whether it's your work or your family, whatever refuge you may cling to will crumble on the last day. And yet, even in this moment, Jesus so freely, graciously offers himself to you, saying, I, I myself, the one who created you, the one who made you for my own glory, will be your refuge, will be a very present help, an immediate and a well-proved help to you in trouble. I urge you, lay down your arms and come to Christ, who will be your refuge and strength. Let's pray together. God Almighty, help us to be still. Help us to lay down our arms. Help us to lay ourselves aside and our own interests, our self-interests, our selfish ambitions, our pride. Help us to lay it aside and to humbly confess that you are God. Lord, you will be exalted in all the earth. Everyone will bow their knee to you one day. Lord, thank you that you so graciously condescend you so graciously reveal yourself and, and invite us in to know you. That you offer your own strength, your own power, your own divine perfection as our hope and as our refuge. But we have no hope in our devices. We have no hope in the devices of anyone else in life. Our only hope is you. Help us to trust in you, Lord, and help my brothers and sisters here to know more freedom from fear. Enlarge our faith. Our faith is so small so often, Lord. We get so consumed. Our vision is just filled with things that are not you. Our vision is so often consumed with work and family and other things that weigh on us in this life, and it distracts us 
from you, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have high thoughts and clear thoughts of you and your glory and in your graciousness. Comfort the souls of your people, and as you comfort the souls of your people, may it draw them to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Please stand as we sing A Mighty Fortress.